0: I want to talk to you this morning out of the sixth chapter of Daniel. This is uh, probably one of the most familiar of the of all the Old Testament Bible stories. This is Daniel in the lion's den, and we are going to look at this for a couple of weeks. The setting uh, is that of King Darius, the king of the Medes, who will be followed by King Cyrus, who would be the king of the Persians. You recall Nebuchadnezzar's dream uh, of the statue with the head of gold and the the chest and the arms of silver and such. Uh, This would be the second kingdom. The head of gold represented Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom, which indeed was a, a great and expansive kingdom. And now the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians takes over. Darius has, uh, at the conclusion of chapter 5, has taken uh, captive the city of Babylon, and Belshazzar has been slain. And now it's a, a, new, a new day, if you will. However, the kingdom of the Medes and Persians is not going to be nearly as expansive, nor as powerful, uh, nor as glorious as the kingdom of Nebuchadnezzar. So you see these kingdoms begin to decrease in influence and power and glory. And uh, again, it begins with this particular kingdom. So uh, with that a little brief introduction, let's read the chapter, and then, uh, then I just want to talk to you out of the chapter. It pleased Darius, who again is the new king, to appoint 100, uh, 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom with three administrators over them, One of whom was Daniel. The satraps were made accountable to them so that the king might not suffer loss. The idea is, is he can keep track of tax money. Now, Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. At this, the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel. In his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. Those two words, "at this," this is this is the point at which the, it's the straw breaking the camel's back, if you will. Daniel is now over eighty years old. Can you imagine throwing an eighty-year-old man in a lion's den? What a threat he is, right? He's over eighty years old. He's been in Babylon and he's been in government service, if you will, uh, since. He graduated from Nebuchadnezzar's grad school, remember? So he's been there for a good 60 60 years and, uh, and participating. And remember, he is one of the exiles from Judah. He is a foreigner. And I want to submit to you that these other administrators and satraps and government officials, who no doubt are holdovers from the previous administration, they probably have been nurturing a seething resentment under the surface for years and years and years. And I'm going to talk about that in a few minutes. But those words, as soon as Darius wants to place Daniel above all of these other officials, that's it. We're done. No more. And they're going to try to undermine him. You follow what's going on here? But we're told uh, they could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. And finally, these men said, we will never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with the law of his God. So the administrators and the satraps went as a group to the king. Now, how do you suppose, what kind of mood and attitude do you suppose they went to the king with? Do you think they had a malicious intent? Oh, absolutely. The, uh, the text in the original language is, is translated from the Aramaic, not the Hebrew. This, is, uh, this account is written in the, in the Aramaic and uh, A couple of commentators I read suggested that uh, the language here, translated in the NIV, uh, went as a group. They did so. There's a note, a tone to the Aramaic language and words that indicates they went with a a conspiratorial rage, if you will. They just can't contain themselves and they are hell-bent on getting this guy killed. Does that ring a familiar note to anybody about uh, uh, when the leaders of Israel went to uh, uh, Herod and went to uh, Pontius Pilate about a certain certain person? They could stand it no longer. They'd had enough. And there was a seething rage underneath the surface. They're not just jealous of Daniel. There's a whole other issue here going on. And it's something we need to take note of. So they went as a group to the king and said, Oh, King Darius, live forever. That was the the typical greeting to the king acknowledging his, his sovereignty. They said, O King Darius, live forever. The royal administrators, prefects, satraps, advisors, and governors have all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any god or man during the next 30 days, except to you, O king, shall be thrown into the lion's den. Now, why do you suppose they would, they would suggest this kind of edict to King Darius? Do you remember when Nebuchadnezzar had the 90-foot-high had the statue built and ordered all of the people and all the leaders uh, of his, his expansive kingdom to come and bow down to it? This was a way to consolidate the kingdom. So here, these people, no doubt hearkening back to that, using this tactic, this methodology, to get, Nebu- to get Darius to agree under the ruse of we want to help you consolidate your kingdom. So no one in the whole kingdom can pray to anybody except you, O king. Now, it's going to seem like a very logical thing for him. Hey, guys, that's a great idea. Thanks for helping me. But they realize, how many know, how many have heard of the law of unintended consequences? (laughs) Right? It's going to come back to bite these guys. And as well, it's going to come back to bite Darius. Darius. On the surface, it seems like a reasonable strategy to take. However, we read this. So, verse 9, King Darius put the decree in writing. Now, when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened towards Jerusalem. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he had done before. And then these men, again, went as a group and found Daniel praying and asking God for help. They went with the same malicious rage and intent that they had that gone to see the king. And so they went to the king and spoke to him about this his royal decree, did you not publish a decree that during the next 30 days anyone who prays to any god or man except you, O king, would be thrown into the lion's den? The king answered, the decree stands in accordance with the laws of the Medes and Persians which cannot be annulled. And that was something characteristic to their law. Not even the king himself uh, could annul or change a law once it was put into effect. So he he was handcuffed. And then they said to the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah. You see, they can't get this out of their craw. How long do you suppose they've known Daniel? Yeah, 50 years, 60 years, some of them, right? But it's what? It, the, the only way they can describe him is not honorable, not trustworthy, not loyal, this exile from Judah, this foreigner. He pays no attention to you, O king, or to the decree you put in writing. He still prays three times a day. When the king heard this, he was greatly distressed. He was determined to rescue Daniel and made every effort until sundown to save him. Now, he knows he can't annul the law, so he's looking for a loophole. (laughs) Can't find a loophole. Then the men went again as a group to the king and said to him, "Remember, O king, that according to the law of the Medes and Persians no decree or edict that the king issues can be changed." So they know they know he's trying to find a loophole and they're they are intent on getting Daniel prosecuted. And so the king gave the order and they brought Daniel and threw him into the lions' den. The king said to Daniel, may your God, whom you serve, continually rescue you. I want to suggest to you an an alternate reading of his words to Daniel. Daniel, I've tried to save you, but I've failed. Your God must save you. He must save you. I think that's more in keeping with... uh, our prayers, God, you've got to help in this desperate situation. A stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the rings of his nobles. So the Daniel situation might not be changed. In other words, no one could get in there and steal. Him. No one could get him out. He couldn't roll away the stone. Kind of harkens to another event, huh? Centuries down the road a stone is rolled in front of a mouth of a burial chamber and sealed. The king then returned to his palace and spent the night without eating and without any entertainment being brought to him, and he could not sleep. At the first light of dawn, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. And when he came near the den, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve, continually been able to rescue you from the lions? In silence, Daniel was eaten. No, they didn't have no. This is great. I love this. Daniel answered, Oh king, live forever. I mean, you gotta, you gotta kind of appreciate his attitude. He's in the line. O king, live forever. No concern about himself. My God What can man do to me when I trust in God? At the king's command, the men who had falsely accused Daniel were brought in and they were thrown into the lion's den along with their wives and children. Before they reached the floor of the den, the lions overpowered them and crushed all their bones People have have wondered, they said, you know, Daniel was in there, they'll deny a miracle happened. They'll say, well, the lions really weren't hungry, or they were toothless. Well, I think that very next verse uh, speaks to that issue and settles that one, doesn't it? Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and men of every language throughout the land, may you prosper greatly. I issue a decree that in every part of my kingdom, people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel. Wouldn't that be wonderful if there was a decree issued in our land? If, if our government, our president, would stand up publicly, I issue a decree, Nancy Pelosi would issue that decree. <laughs> Strike that from the tape, please. I know, that's going to come back to bite me, I just know it. It's not in the notes. It got away from me. I'm sorry. (laughs) I wish you a decree that in every part of my kingdom, people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel, for he is the living God and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His kingdom will never end. He rescues and he saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. And so Daniel prospered. During the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian, he's 80-plus years old. The guy just keeps chugging. It's amazing. As I said earlier, this account is, is probably one of the most familiar and indeed popular uh, Old Testament uh, stories. Uh, it really is an account that can be identified um, as a court narrative of conflict. So here in Darius' court, there's conflict between the nobles, conflict between the administrators. And the plot appears to be driven on the surface because there's always the appearances of things, the apparent reason, but what's the real reason? The plot appears to be driven by a jealousy, an apparent jealousy that Daniel's peers in this new government that has been established, that they they appear to be just simply jealous toward his rapid rise to the top of this political hierarchy now. And they clearly seek to undermine his position by pitting his loyalty to God over against his loyalty to the government of Darius, which he serves The conflict really and ultimately is between two kingdoms. The kingdom of this world and the kingdom of God. It's the same conflict that you and I face every single day. It's a conflict between the kingdom of the world, the kingdom of darkness, and the kingdom of God, the kingdom of light. And both kingdoms vie for our loyalty, don't they? They vie for our attention. They vie for our time and resources. On the one hand, with respect to Daniel, we have uh, King Darius. He is, as verse 25 tells us, he is ruler of all the peoples, nations, and men of every language throughout the land. He is also the enforcer of the law of the Medes and Persians. On the other hand, we have the God of Daniel. Verse 27 tells us, the God performing signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth, and he is the enforcer of his law. The Mosaic law, the Jewish law. So you have Darius on the one hand, you have God on the other hand. You have the law of the Medes and Persians on the one hand, and you have God's law on the other hand. And they're vying for our loyalty and for our attention. These kingdoms clearly overlap, do they not? They clearly overlap. The question of sovereignty now has to be resolved. On which side am I going to come down? Really? Not just apparently. What side am I going to come down really? Who am I going to serve? Jesus said you can't serve two masters, true? Can't live in two kingdoms simultaneously serving two kingdoms. Now as we examine the conflict and the underlying cause for this conflict, the overarching theme, uh, which, which really encompasses the entire book of Daniel, uh, is rehearsed again in this chapter. Who, who remembers what the overarching theme of the book of Daniel might be? God is in control. God is sovereign. In spite of present appearances, in spite of present appearances, God is still in control. Things can look freaky, they can look scary, they're intimidating. God is still in control. And he is victorious, and he will be victorious over the seemingly powerful adverse forces that are arrayed against him and his people. The whole point of this is, is, is to bring encouragement and comfort to God's people, more particularly Israel, who's in or the Jews who are in captivity in Babylon. Uh, despite they see kingdom after kingdom after kingdom come and overrun them, starting with Nebuchadnezzar and then all the succeeding kings after him, Belshazzar and now Darius, and who knows what's going to happen in the future. In their mind, it's meant for them and for their comfort and encouragement. In any one of us who finds ourselves in situations that are beyond our control, we are utterly helpless and tempted to be hopeless, but we are not without hope, true? We are not without hope. That's what we gather. We gather, uh, and part of our gathering, both in, in, on the weekends and midweek in our in small groups and mini-church and such, is to encourage one another and to remind one another we have a great hope because we have a great God. And when you cease to be involved uh, with each other and cease to encourage one another, you only end up cheating yourself. Isn't that true? And, and then it's easy for you to become. It's like uh, Tui said, you know, he and Miley had not been involved for a few weeks in mini church and they could feel it palpably, something's missing from our life and it does affect you. So it's meant to bring comfort and encouragement to the people. If I can just reduce it to this, uh, God calls us to remain faithful. Remain faithful, he will take care of you. Turn to your neighbor and just, just encourage your neighbor with those words. Just encourage him. remain faithful, he'll take care of us, he'll take care of you. Anybody tempted to be anxious? Anxious about circumstances? Yeah. Remain faithful. Sometimes it seems like he just takes you right up to the edge of the precipice and you're leaning over. Even if you fall, he'll still take care of you. Read Psalm 91. Now with the The apparent successful conquest of Babylon by this new administration, by this new king, by King Darius, uh, he's going to set up his new government, and he's going to organize the kingdom, uh, both from the standpoint of law and order, and also from the standpoint of taxation. This is always an issue for governments, as we know. And the organization of this kingdom is clearly detailed in the first few verses with the 120 satraps and the three administrators who were appointed over them. This is the setting for Daniel's one, first of all, place of honor, but it's also the setting for his greatest test. You would think the guy's 80 years old, he's served faithfully with all these years, uh, he's still going to be tested. Imagine that. Isn't that exciting? The older you get, the longer you walk with Jesus, you think, man, I passed about every test there is. No, he still has more. (laughs) This is going to be his greatest test. Daniel is named one of the three administrators who would coordinate the work of the 120 satraps. and Of them, again, it was required to give the financial accounting and uh, protect basically the king's interests. And in that situation, it would be logical to look for a a capable administrator who would be familiar with Babylon, familiar with its history, familiar with the territories, familiar with the people, uh, familiar with the problems of taxation and so forth. Uh, Someone who... Who familiar with all that would undoubtedly be, do you think, a a, a tremendous resource to this new king? Absolutely. That's why he picks Daniel. Daniel has a great reputation. It's, It's preceded him. Obviously. That's why Darius picks him. So the stage is set for Daniel. Now in spite of the attention and all the attention and all the trust that Daniel enjoyed in past administrations and uh, in, in, in the potential of this new administration, he was especially hated, despised by his peers in this new administration. And this hatred was bent on his destruction. This was not merely professional jealousy. This was, I submit to you, a seething hatred and rage that had been building and building and building for years towards Daniel. We have an adversary, don't we? The devil. Let me ask you this question. Has anybody ever experienced this? Uh, Maybe prior to becoming a Christian, maybe on the verge, uh, maybe brand new, I don't know, in some, some complex environment like that. Have you ever felt irked? I mean, irked, irked at, irked at Christians, or irked at singing the music? And anybody know what I'm talking about? I, I had somebody tell me that uh, they, uh, when they when they started coming to the church, um, they were kind of urged to come here. You know what I'm talking about? And, uh, and they, just, they said that the, the, the music just irked me. And, and I, I suggested, because as I complete the sermon this morning, you'll, hopefully you'll catch it, uh, there, there was an underlying disposition of antagonism towards God. And there was a conviction happening in that life. Just irked me. You Christians irked me. Where'd that come from? Why do people do that? And so here, they are, they're, they're exhibiting an, an express rage and hatred towards him. Um, Paul calls this, I think it's a fair to use this phrase, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 7, uh, the, the mystery of lawlessness or the secret power of lawlessness. It's this force in us. Can't quite put our finger on it, but it's there. It's palpable. It's real and it's venomous. There was no good reason whatsoever why Daniel should be hated and persecuted, except that he was good, except that he stood before men as a sign of the existence and grace of a good God. Our lives should, like Daniel's, exhibit that. Would you agree? But what's going to happen is for people who are godless and who hate God, we are going to, our very presence is going to irk them at the very least. The mystery of evil lies in the fact that through the mystery of freedom given to us in creation to respond in love and in joy and in liberty to our creator, there has arisen in this universe created good in all of its aspects, there has arisen a blindly perverse and absurd reaction that can only be called satanic. It has no place in God's original purpose, creation, no place in his final triumph, though for a season it is allowed to work its gross horrible, strange havoc until the time of its final destruction. Evil is with us. This is a tripping, a tripping point for lots and lots of people. If God is so good, why is there evil? Why is there evil? How do we account for evil? It is a perverseness that has somehow entered into God's creation. The account of Daniel, hated by his contemporaries, plotted against and condemned to die simply because he stood for the truth and loved what God loved and lived it out. It's only another in a long series of such accounts in the Bible. It's no different. It's no different from from strong Christians today who are hated. Uh, Pastor Steve was telling me that they were um, at the USC game last night, one of our evangelistic teams, and they were standing out. where literally thousands and thousands of people were walking towards the Coliseum, and they were they were taking turns preaching the gospel, and people were cursing and jeering. I couldn't believe SC people would do that, but they were doing it. <laughs> Some. And these accounts of hatred, irrational hate. It's irrational. It's absurd. In these accounts throughout the Bible, you see them brother against brother. Neighbor against neighbor. Prophets persecuted. All by those who are against God. There was the hatred of Cain for his brother Abel. There was the hatred of the sons of Jacob for their brother Joseph. The hatred of Saul for David. Murderous. Murderous. Throughout the history of Israel. You see the you see uh, just in the life of the people betrayed a, a, a murderous hatred for the prophets and the messengers of God. And it all culminates, culminates in, in hatred to shown to one particular person where, who's that person and where was it shown? To Jesus on that cross. It all culminated, all the hatred towards God culminates in the person of Jesus Christ. A man who went about doing good and healing diseases. A man who went about helping others. You see the the, the leaders, contemporaries of Daniel, hating him, wanting to kill him. And you see the leaders in Israel hating Jesus and wanting to kill him. The parallels are unmistakable. Jesus... That hatred shown to Jesus in his crucifixion was shown by those who represent all of us. What do I mean by that? The hatred of Daniel's fellow administrators can find its full expression and satisfaction only, only, in the murder of Daniel. This is the case in all the biblical accounts of such hatred. It is always deadly. Joseph's brothers meant to kill him. The people stoned their prophets to death. The Holy Spirit says in 1st John chapter 3 verse 15, anyone who hates his brother is a murderer. It is the very nature of all true hatred to kill. It can't be satisfied unless it kills, unless it destroys. And it is the crucifixion of Jesus himself that shows us exactly what our hatred is and what it ultimately leads to as it seeks its fulfillment. And that hatred is essentially directed against God. Very, very few people would admit that. But the proof is in their opposition. Their proof is in the venom. Their proof is in how they treat the things of God and the people of God. They hate God. They hate God. This is is true of the whole world. We were God's enemies, right? We hated Him. Now, we, we may not say that, But the truth of the matter is that before we became Christians, we hated God. We could do nothing else. Deep down in every human heart, note this, all have the same resentment of the truth of God. It just tightens our jaws. What do you mean there's only one way? how narrow how 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 bigoted you are we resent the truth of god we love what is opposite of god jesus said this he said in john chapter 3 verse 19 men loved darkness instead of light. We we love that which is opposite. We are citizens of the kingdom of darkness. It takes God to rescue us, Paul says, rescue us from that kingdom of darkness and transfer us to the kingdom of his son whom he loves. God has to do that. Not because we're cute, not because we deserve it, because he's merciful. this opposition to God finds its culminating expression in the cross itself. You and I were there when he was crucified. You and I were there when he was crucified. And I say, well, wait, 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 that was, that was 2,000 years. I wasn't even born yet. I wasn't there. You and I were there represented by those people who killed him. It's as if you and I were driving the nails into his hands. You see, I would never do such a thing. I I didn't really hate God. Yes, you did. You're just in denial. We're all in denial. We were on the wrong side. And when the truth of that when we allow the truth of that to come crashing in on us, it is only then that we really know ourselves correctly for the first time. That's when conviction hits. That's when we're just devastated. That's when we say, oh my God, I am a sinner. I am a rebel. I did hate you. God, forgive me. Unless we are compelled by the true state of who we were and what we did, we'll just blithely go on justifying ourselves, feeling okay about ourselves. Well, yeah, I do sin, but I'm not that bad a person, right? We have to be crushed by that knowledge Convicted by that knowledge. The Bible teaches that hatred, hatred itself cannot arise out of the goodness of creation as God made it. Genesis chapter 1, verse 31. After God had finished his work, note what it says. And God saw all that he had made and it was marginally good. It was what? It was very good. There was no evil. It was beautiful. It was perfect in every way. It was very good, not flawed. The Bible teaches us, again, that hatred can have its origin only in the intrusion. The intrusion of a satanic mind and spirit and power into the life of this world. And guess what? It was our fault. We let that satanic mind and spirit and power into the life of this world. It was through our It was our fault. It was through our fall, through our abuse of our freedom that brought us into bondage to this satanic spirit. And this spirit has worked death and havoc everywhere ever since. We let it in. We opened the door in the person of Adam. You say, well, yeah, but if I was there, if I was Adam, I would have never done that. Don't say that. You'd like to think that you wouldn't do it. How arrogant. Here was Adam, perfect in every way. He knew exactly what he was doing. The Bible says he disobeyed. The woman was deceived, but he disobeyed. That's why God comes to him in the third chapter of Genesis and he calls to the man, What is this you've done? And then, of course, you know, he passes the buck. It's pathetic. <laughs> Listen to Ephesians chapter 2. Paul writes this. First three verses. This is, this is the havoc that, that has been wreaked because we let the satanic spirit in. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Dead. Dead. You ever seen a dead body? Can you rouse it? No, as much as you shake it, you cannot rouse a dead person. They're dead. We were dead in our sins and our transgressions, he says, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air. He was Lord in our life. The Spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient, all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, note this, we were by nature objects of wrath. We were by nature Objects of God's wrath, his guns of judgment, were trained on us. Now you can read the rest of the passage on your own to find out the good news. (laughs) But God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive miraculously. Hatred's presence, I think you'll agree, is as absurd as its nature is irrational. Isn't that true? We, We think... Hate. This is absurd. This is not constructive. It's not helpful. It's absolutely irrational to hate. You can sit back very, be very logical about it, but the reality is it's still there, isn't it? And its work is real. Its work is terrible. Its work is gigantic in its scale. Paul, again, let me quote to you from 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Listen to, how, listen to the effect of, of, of this work. He says, And even if our gospel is veiled, verse 3, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. It's veiled. It's veiled. The work of, of this evil power Hatred towards God is gigantic, so gigantic, so devastating. Think about this with me, that God has put all of his strength, all of his power, all of his might, this is how gigantic the rebellion has been. This is how gigantic and devastating the havoc has been wreaked on his his creation. God puts all of his power, all of his resources, all of his might into this great new reconciling and redeeming act and work to put things right. It's not that just God just snaps his finger. We have this idea of an omnipotent God that, well, sin is just some minor inconvenience. He snaps his finger, boom, it's all taken care of. It's no, it's a, it's, it's no problem to him. No, 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 no. How many have been in a a tragically broken, hateful relationship? How many would admit to that at some point in your life? You've been in a relationship that's just been hateful, murderous even maybe. So devastated that there's no way that there can be reconciliation. No way whatsoever. And you attempt to do it. Doesn't it take everything that you have and everything that you are continually poured into this thing just to try to bring about some matter of order? This is how gigantic the effect of this evil and this hatred, hatred for God, is in his creation. And it requires all of his strength, all of his might, all of his power, all of his attention. He is fully focused to restore us. Does that blow your mind? I mean, just think about about that. Daniel was so unashamedly and avowedly godly that he was hated by his opponents. No matter how Babylonian he was in his lifestyle, no matter how loyal he was to his duties, to his adopted country, Daniel never, ever failed. To let it be known to all around him that what was most excellent about him did not come from Babylon, it came from Jerusalem, and it was to Jerusalem that he constantly looked, to its history, culture, religion, God, all that Jerusalem stood for. He looked for, looked at, looked for to to inspire him to to instill in him hope, to renew his hope and confidence. Before the eyes of everyone in Babylon, he would stand boldly and he would stand uncompromisingly for Jerusalem and for everything that he had been built to signify in the service of God. His habit of daily prayer, his habit of daily prayer, which he hid from nobody, showed all who knew him where he believed truth was to be found and where he believed all men everywhere must look for salvation. Read with me again verses 10 and 11 of Daniel chapter 6. Now when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened towards where? Jerusalem. Three times a day he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God just as he had done before. And then these men went as a group and found Daniel praying and asking God for help. Here's Daniel in his upper room with the windows open toward Jerusalem, praying to the God who had drawn Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to the God who had led Israel out of Egypt, to the God who had uh, founded that eternal city under David. And that city, Jerusalem, all it stood for, that was the very magnet, if you will, to which his mind and heart always turned. When the temple was originally built and dedicated, do you remember who dedicated the temple? Solomon. And he prayed a prayer of dedication. And I wonder if Daniel, in praying towards Jerusalem, had in mind part of Solomon's prayer. Let me read to you uh, part of that prayer. It's in 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 35. And Solomon prays, When the heavens are shut up and there is no rain, because your people have sinned against you, and when they pray, notice this, when they pray towards this place, Interesting. All Jews, no matter, were, to, were, 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 were incited, were instructed, encouraged to pray towards Jerusalem. And they confess your name and turn from their sin because you have afflicted them. Then hear from heaven and forgive their sin, the sin of your servants, your people Israel. Teach them the right way to live and send rain on the land you gave your people for an inheritance. The orientation of his prayer closet windows was a symbol of the continual tendency of his mind and heart when not immersed in Babylon and the duties of Babylon itself. To turn towards everything, everything that he had read in his holy books, that spoke about the Lord and his temple there in Jerusalem. Jerusalem, of which the temple was the center, the place where God would meet with his people, the place where the patriarchs journeyed towards Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the place that the prophets had visions about, especially Isaiah. Visions of the great future of Jerusalem. Let me read to you from Isaiah chapter 2. Daniel, Daniel believed, I'm convinced, he believed that one day all people somehow would find their unity by going up to the mountain of the, the God of Israel. Isaiah speaks of that. Isaiah chapter 2. He says, this is what Isaiah, son of Amoz, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the last days... The mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as chief among the mountains. It will be raised above the hills and all nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Isn't that beautiful? Come, O house of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Likewise, in the prophet Zechariah chapter eight, we read, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Many peoples and the inhabitants of many cities Will yet come. And the inhabitants of one city will go to another and say, Let us go at once to entreat the Lord and seek the Lord Almighty. I myself am going. And many peoples and powerful nations will come to Jerusalem to seek the Lord Almighty and to entreat him. And this is what the Lord Almighty says In those days, ten men from all languages and nations will take firm hold of one Jew by the edge of his robe. And say, let us go with you because we have heard that God is with you. Whoa! You could, you could insert the word Christian. Yeah, ten people from every tongue and language will take hold of your robe and say, I wanna know your God. I wanna go to church with you! That'd be cool? All of us dragging ten people to church? They say, come on, hurry up, hurry up. We're gonna be late. The donuts are gonna be gone by the time we get there. What's the point of this? Jerusalem. Daniel had a passion for Jerusalem. He prayed towards Jerusalem because he was praying to the God, his God. In Jerusalem, all men would worship God who who would speak from his new temple. And they would learn to know his law and they would learn to walk in his paths and they would beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks and learn war no more. For Daniel, the future of mankind was not, was not bound up with the great city that Nebuchadnezzar had built, Babylon. No, the future of mankind was bound up with the great city that Nebuchadnezzar had destroyed, Jerusalem. For Daniel, humanity would never rise from the dust until Jerusalem again began to stir. The rebuilding of the city. He never ceased to pray that God would restore Jerusalem. He never ceased to pray that God would rebuild the temple, rebuild the walls of the city. Take up, once again, the purpose that he believed had been cut off only for a season. And people knew that Daniel prayed. They knew that he prayed and they knew why he prayed three times a day. Why three times a day? What, 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 would, what would he lead? Isn't just to throw up a quick prayer while I'm driving to work good enough? What do you think? Three times a day. Might he have drawn something from Psalm 55, verse 17? The psalmist says, Evening, morning, and noon, I cry out in distress, and he hears my voice. Three times a day. When the people around Daniel would ask him what it all meant, he would tell them. He would tell them what he believed. And since he had now no temple to go up to in order to witness to the triumph of his God, Daniel opened his windows three times a day towards the holy city. But it was precisely this persistent loyalty to the old ways of Judah. It was precisely his constant refusal to cut himself off from Jerusalem. After all these years, Come on, Daniel, give it up. Get with it, it's modern times. And Daniel would say, give me that old time religion. (laughs) Not this modern, funky stuff. No, he wasn't ready to cut himself off. His repeated claim that the truth and salvation for the world lay in Jerusalem and nowhere else that made all the powerful people in Babylon hate him. Hate him. They hated him not just because he was a foreigner. They hated him not just because they were jealous of his extraordinary abilities. Oh, those things were apparent, but that wasn't the real reason. They hated him mainly because in spite of the fact that he was so impeccably loyal and helpful to Babylon, the whole orientation of his outstanding life tended to point not to Babylon, but to Zion, to Jerusalem. The whole orientation of our life points where? Points to Jesus, doesn't it? the whole orientation of our life, not just part of it. Too often he stood simply for what Jerusalem alone stood for. And too clearly his talk and his way of life bore witness to his strong belief that salvation for mankind could only come from the God who had chosen Jerusalem to be his dwelling place. I suspect that his enemies could have forgiven him um, if he simply had failed in some of his duties. I suspect that they could have cut him some slack, if you will, uh, if he had failed to maintain his excellence of spirit. But the very idea, the very idea that the gods of Babylon and of all these nations indeed were not really gods at all, that there, were no, there was no other divine name that ultimately mattered at all except that of Yahweh of Jerusalem. That was something they could not take anymore. This is it. This is it. We're going to kill him. We're going to kill him. And Jesus, Jesus just kept telling people, didn't he? I am the way, the truth, and life, making himself out to be God. There is only one God, and you are of your father, the devil. Oh, that's it. That's it. We're done. We're going to the powers that be. It was inevitable. It was inevitable that faithfulness to the God of Israel in that ancient world should give offense. Should give offense to those who believe strongly in the value of their own gods, their own religions, their own points of view, their own philosophies, their own systems of thought. What do you mean there's only one way? The Bible, the Bible insists that truth is not something that's generally diffused to, to all men. You know, we, we, we have this misnomer, I believe, that we, we know truth, that mankind in general knows truth, that we can see truth. No, no, that's not true. The Bible doesn't teach that. It's, truth is not something that natural man, by his own exercise of his innate abilities, his innate intelligence, or even uh, spiritual truth that he can he can perceive it by his own religious faculties. No, it's not. It's not possible. We are dead. We are blind, as people. Truth, truth is something that God, God prepared, prepared for, worked, and lived out by himself, within the context of, guess what? His own people. His own people. Truth is not something we apprehend all by ourselves. It's not. It's something that God grants, God gives. But more than that, truth is God himself, as he lives out his life in us. Never separate. You cannot know the real truth separate from God. Listen to Deuteronomy chapter 4. It's in this passage that Moses is is instructing the Israelites. This is the second generation that's about ready to go in and and possess the, the promised land. And he's giving them the law for the second time. That's where the word Deuteronomy comes from. Deutero, second nomos, second giving of the law. And he says to them this interesting thing. He says, see, I've taught you my decrees and laws as the Lord, my God, commanded me so that you may follow them in the land you are entering to take possession of. Observe them carefully, for this will show your wisdom and understanding to the nations who will hear about all these decrees and say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. Whoa, you'll have a testimony. God lives out His law, His will, His purpose, His life through His people as a testimony to others who will say, wow! What other nation is so great as to have their gods near them the way the Lord our God is near us whenever we pray to Him? And what other nation is so great as to have such righteous decrees and laws as this body of laws I'm setting before you today? God meant for Israel to be a light to the nations. He means for us to be a light to the nations, doesn't he? With Daniel, as with all of us, may I suggest, it's the old story. of a person who cannot commit, I mean, who cannot avoid giving offense. You just can't avoid it because you have come under the constraint of what you believe is the final, absolute truth. The Word of God. The Bible. Jesus Christ. And it is exclusive. It is shattering to every other system that wants to exist alongside it. It is utterly intolerant of the possibility that anything else could claim the same finality and absoluteness. The Word of God. All of a sudden, when you make a claim for your faith in the world today, you are bound to face the same problems as Daniel You're going to give offense. Now, Paul says, you shouldn't be the offense. Don't be offensive. The gospel is the offense. The claim of the word of God is the offense. This is what stirs up this latent hatred that's just under the surface. Jesus warned his disciples, did he not? He warned his disciples if they witnessed to him clearly and faithfully, served him loyally, they would never, ever be able to avoid presenting the same kind of offense or have the same kind of shattering impact on a world so varied in its cultural, religious traditions. I've heard this a thousand times if I've heard it once. People want people to get real personal, and, and, and now it really begins to come to the surface. You Christians, you Christians are so narrow and bigoted. I know I've just touched a hot button. And my response is, you're right. We are narrow. We're not bigoted. We're narrow. Because Jesus says... Narrow is the way to life and few who find it. Broad is the way to destruction. Look around you. Jesus told his disciples that they would have to preach. They would have to preach that he was the good shepherd. They would have to preach that all others who came before him were just simply thieves and robbers. They would have to preach that He alone is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one could come to the Father but through Him. They would have to preach that He alone was the Savior, that there was no other name under heaven given to men by which they must be saved. There is only one name that all other men needed to be saved. Why? Because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're all in the same boat. They would have to preach that Jesus alone was the good physician, the good doctor, who came to heal the sick, those who needed him. They would have to insist that truth was that which finally happened once for all time, once for all people, when he was born in a manger, when he lived his perfect life, when he died to reconcile all men to God on that cross, and when he rose again from the dead. They would have to preach an exclusive message. And this would, by the very nature of its exclusivity, be an offense. And it would rouse hatred in those who hated God. Let me read you from Ephesians chapter 4. Paul writes, So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. You, however, did not come to know Christ that way. Surely you heard of him and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. This is the condition of the world. We should be radically different. In 1 John chapter 5, John writes... Much the same thing, speaking of Jesus as being the truth. He says, We know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding, so that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true. Even in His Son, Jesus Christ, He is the true God and eternal life. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. There's only one way. When you take that stand, when you open your proverbial windows towards Jerusalem, when you make the statement, when you declare your position, guess what? You can expect people's hatred for you to become really, really visible. So the question I posed to you this morning, how now shall we live? How now shall we live? Shall we live like Daniel? Shall we live like Daniel, standing for the truth, loving God and loving what he loves and living it out? Or shall we live like timid, lukewarm compromisers whom God said he will spit out of his mouth? How now shall we live? Are we willing to risk the wrath and the hatred of those around us to live a life that brings God glory? Simple choice. Amen? Amen? Lord, help us to know these things. Help us understand them. Help us to embrace them. Thank you for Daniel's example. Thank you for the example of all the saints and all the patriarchs, and all who live faithfully, Lord, to honor you. You've given us your word as a testimony to the truth. Lord, help us to love it, embrace it as the, as the sign that we love you and embrace you, your will and your kingdom. Father, we love you this morning. We give you all the praise. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.